my friends, and welcome to episode number 24 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of you spiritual exiles out there looking for faith beyond the confines of institutional religion. My guest for this episode of the podcast is my friend and colleague, Jenny Williams, who I often describe as an innovator in ecclesiology. Jenny is a United Methodist pastor who is interested in exploring new forms of what it might look like for churches, for the ecclesia, as we might say, to form around intersections of relationships and justice work. She's got some really interesting ideas about what new kinds of faith communities could grow out of that kind of focus, and I think you'll enjoy hearing her fresh approach to what it could mean for churches to be more intentionally justice-centered. Jenny and I ended up going a little over our normal time for a podcast episode when we chatted a couple of weeks ago. So what you'll hear today is the first part of our conversation, and then you can catch part two beginning on October 2nd, 2020, which will be, by the way, the last episode of season number one of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. So please join me in giving a very warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to my good friend, Reverend Jenny Williams. Um, there's still the, um, the, the haves and the have nots. There's also, I like to think of it in terms of the, the arm's length, right? I'll help you. Um, and that is so much easier than being in relationship with you. Okay. So for this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast, I am really excited to introduce you to my good friend, Jenny Williams. Um, Jenny and I have, um, we, we're colleagues in the West Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church, um, but we've been friends for a long time. We um, we took the pilgrimage to Wild Goose Festival together last year, which kind of messed us both up in all of the best ways, I think. Um, but we've been having um, some ongoing conversations and just kind of to want to let you all um, as listeners in on some of the stuff that Jenny and I've been talking about and thinking about and dreaming about, um, because I think a lot of it relates pretty directly to um, to some of the angst and emotions and dreams that a lot of us who kind of consider ourselves to be like on the outside looking in sometimes from church world, but are still really interested in the Jesus story and still really interested in being in community with people. And so we've, we've been having those conversations. And so um, we just thought we'd kind of let you in on that. So Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's awesome to have you um, with us on this episode. So why don't you tell the folks a little bit about um, who Jenny Williams is? Sure. Thanks so much, Joe. I'm really excited to finally get to be here with you. We've been trying this for a while. So I uh, am a United Methodist pastor serving in West Virginia. I uh, am a Southern California native, uh, grew up there, went to college there, uh, was involved in the United Methodist Church uh, from the time I was in arms. Uh, I was baptized at five weeks into my home church. I sat in the pew as uh, the third generation of people who were sitting together. So we went to worship with my grandparents, um, my I was not a PK, but I'm sort of the most PK, non-PK I think there is in Methodism because uh, we were there every time the church doors opened. And uh, my both my mom and my grandma were really involved in United Methodist Women at local district and conference levels. Um, I was on the, the conference council on youth ministries when I was a teenager, whole hog onto uh, in, into church camp and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when I when I run through that, I, I feel like Paul giving his resume, right? Like, <laughs> his conversion, and he was a Pharisee and zealous, yeah. and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I went to college um, in Santa Barbara, and I was a complete heathen for about five years, um, and and wasn't around uh, the church or church community all, at all, except for Christmas and Easter. And in the middle of that was. Uh, Strangely, my call to ordain ministry was confirmed, uh, which is something that I could trace back to the time that I was 12. Wow. Only I didn't know that it was happening then. Yeah. 
And uh, so this, this sort of bit of wisdom was dropped into my life that I don't claim as mine, but claim uh, that comes from the Holy Spirit that um, knowing I was going to go to seminary, that I should go to seminary in a location that was not like the one that I grew up in. Mm. Um, I was aware of the fact that I'd heard uh, faith articulated one way my whole life and that I needed to go to a place where it was going to be articulated differently so that I could figure out where I actually was in the midst of all of that. So I went to the South uh, from there and uh, went to North Carolina. I went to, uh, I had gone to a huge state university uh, for undergrad. So I knew that I needed to be in a seminary that was both United Methodist and attached to a university because I was not ready to go to a, <laughs> a standalone university with them. wasn't ready to go from 25,000 students to 300. Um, so, uh, so I ended up um, going to Duke and uh, that's uh, where I met my husband who is from West Virginia. And uh, so I came into the state by way of the uh, the unofficial state recruitment program, which is called marriage, <laughs> because West Virginians always go home. Uh, so um, so we got married and, and we were still in North Carolina, had our first child. And when she was seven months, we moved to West Virginia. So uh, to be closer to his family. So. I've served in the West Virginia Conference now for 18 years uh, and had a, a few different appointments here in um, all in the north central part of the state, but in in pretty different contexts. Uh, so currently serve in a um, university town in Morgantown. Um, and so that's a, a different context than others than I have served uh, in West Virginia, but I love it here. Nice. Nice. Well, yeah, first, I guess the first thing I need to do just for our listeners' sake is unpack some of our insider language already, right? But sure. <laughs> because, Thank you. because the United Methodist Church is a bureaucracy, <laughs> and <laughs> so we we function differently than a lot of other denominations do. Oh, and PK um, is an abbreviation for pastor's kid. Like we, I think most folks get that one, but we do we throw that around a lot of times. Um, but yeah, so when we talk about um, conferences and committees and appointments and things like that. It's just really kind of all part of our, um, what we call our connection, but it's our infrastructure where we really are, um, for better or for worse, uh, a, a corporate entity, right? We're, we're a corporate church, um, with, with sort of global, regional, you know, um, and local <laughs> sort of expressions of, of how we do things. But so, so we've been, you know, but, and, and I say all of that uh, to kind of get us to the meat of the conversation, because one of the things you and I've been talking about for months, is, even kind of pre COVID, we were starting to have these conversations about like the church needs to change and adapt. And we've, we've got to start to break down some old paradigms and, not just embrace new paradigms, but completely create new paradigms, like in some ways, even maybe starting from scratch in some ways. Um, and so I think that's, and, and that's why I wanted to have you on Jenny, because I think, you know, um, kind of sometimes just brainstorming those ideas out loud <laughs> is, is helpful for folks. And I think it'll be helpful for listeners to hear what people are thinking about that the church could be as we start to see the really the the dismantling of the institutional church as people you know continue to lose faith and trust in you know the the gargantuan entity that is not just the methodist church right or the united methodist church but like the church in general institutionally we can i think all of us can kind of feel the sands shifting under our feet you know that that things are changing but but we've been talking about okay how how can things be different. And so let's start with um, one of the things that you've been thinking about for a long time. And then COVID kind of accelerated, I think, a lot of our thinking about how this could look. But you've you've been thinking about how how communities of faith, let's even get away from the word church as a gathering, but how can communities of faith form around local justice needs? I started to say issues, but I think needs is maybe a better term. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you've been thinking about along those lines. 
Um, and, and some of the, you know, and you're already doing some experimenting with that a little bit. So what's that looking like? Sure. So, um, yeah, wild goose wrecked us both, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus has a way of doing that. And, um, you know, it's been, uh, uh, say another, another factor that, that feeds into this is the context of the United Methodist Church and really mainline Protestantism in America. But uh, the context of the United Methodist Church is that our denomination has been wrestling um, very explicitly over the past four years, but certainly for decades before that, um, uh, not quite as explicitly, um, about the inclusion of LGBTQ people. Right. So, um, and when that we say has, exclusion, we don't just mean membership in our congregations, but we mean full exclusion, right? So, inclusion. Yeah, full inclusion. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, when I talk about inclusion, what I mean is um, is mainly the the disagreements in our denomination center around the marriage of LGBTQ people and the ordination of LGBTQ people within our denomination. Right. Um, and by marriage, I mean the the opportunity for our pastors to um, conduct um, same-sex marriages. So um, that's something that's in the background too, before a wild goose. And uh, so that's been um, interesting to walk through and to see um, the heartbreak in that community um, leads to being in touch with other communities that are experiencing heartbreak and exclusion and oppression, even within uh, the church, capital C church. Um, So for people who are listening and don't know, both Joe and I are white. And um, so that um, certainly colors um, the kinds of exclusions. When I talk about exclusions, we're talking about, um, you know, black and indigenous and people of color. Um, so while those exclusions aren't happening formally in our denomination, they've been happening informally really as part of the fabric of our denomination right. for over a century. Um, so, so what I've been thinking about is what would it look like for a faith community to really root itself in local concerns and needs around justice? So for, to give a little background theologically from where we come from is that um, John Wesley, who is the parent of Methodism, um, his, his theology and beliefs could be articulated in ways that looked at both the individual and um, the corporate, the congregation right, or the right. church. And so he talked about personal and social holiness. Um, and a scholar came along, David Lowe's Watson, a, a good while ago, a couple decades ago, who kind of broke these out into quadra- quadrants and, and um, looked at things that we do um, individually and corporately. So um, individuals might engage in um, acts of um, piety, prayer and scripture reading, fasting, those kinds right. of things. And corporately, the church engages in, in worship. That's an act of piety. And then he talked about acts of mercy and the individual might um, engage in acts of uh, compassion. So another word we might use for that is charity. And United Methodist churches are incredible at this. We are really plugged into our local communities to uh, providing clothes for people who need it or food for people who need it or utilities assistance, or, I mean, you can just name it. We're, we're there ready to meet needs of people in our communities. Um, but the corporate acts of mercy um, that we would undertake would fall under this justice category. Um, this is where we work together to address the systems and the, the root cause of things like poverty and racism and heterosexism and things like that. Um, so, I've been thinking about what it would look like specifically in our denomination for a faith community to really coalesce around those works of justice, because I think we don't get there very well. So in our denomination, in many of our judicatories, which are called conferences, uh, there's a, a, like a committee on justice and advocacy. And that's a, a committee of people from around the judicatory who get together and look at, I mean, environmental issues. We look at, um, you know, divestment issues and things like that. And then do that work on behalf of the judicatory and bring it to the judicatory uh, in the form of resolutions and, you 
you know, our adjudicatory will vote to say, write a letter to our legislators right, about right. any number of issues. So, so this committee does this work and, and I want to investigate what does it look like when a local faith community mm, yeah. takes on that work because it's the place that we don't go. Out of those four things that I mentioned, um, you know, acts of um, personal piety, acts of worship, acts of compassion, and acts of justice, we just don't do the justice part by and large in our church. So I've been trying to think about what does it look like for a faith community to engage in that. Yeah, that's, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, especially the part about um, individual or personal, you know, acts of mercy, like we're we're good at custodial care, right? We're good. We're good at writing checks. We're really good at mm-hmm. writing checks for things. And mm-hmm. and that's necessary. Like I know sometimes it, it sounds like I'm coming off negative because there is a tinge of negativity to it, but, <laughs> but it is necessary. Right. And, and we're good at, you know, like you said, stocking food pantries, serving at things like, you know, clothes closets, things like that. But so often it is, I think sometimes the attitude is, this is me helping you because you, the, the undercurrent of that to me is because you are somehow inferior. I'm not sure that's the most fair word yeah. to use, but I, I kind of think that's probably, honestly, that's kind of the heart of the attitude behind it. I, I have something that you have not. So, you know, on the surface, that's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And there's a necessity to it. But I think where we miss the justice piece is it's, it's still always a a one way flow. Right. And, and we don't engage with the people who are, you know, victims of, of injustice, right. Who, um, who are the, you know, they're often the recipients of our care rather than partners in, like you said, you know, creating, systemic change. Absolutely. I mean, the the power differential is still there, right? Even though it comes from a good place, if I am helping you, even if I don't get a big head about that, right? Right, Even if I don't write checks to feel good about myself or or something like that, um, there's still the... the, the haves and the have nots. There's also, I like to think of it in terms of the, the arm's length, right? Yeah. I'll help you. Um, and that is so much easier than being in relationship with you. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, I think the power differential is what you're talking about there. And, um, and that the key to that is developing relationships with the people whom we serve that are built on mutuality, um, presuming that we will learn from we who are are not impoverished will learn from people who don't have their basic daily needs. I mean, um, you know, Jesus models that for us in the story of the widow's mite, right? Uh, you know, he says what she has given with these two small coins is far more than what these wealthy people have given out of their uh, excess or their, you know, yeah, their excess. So uh, he lifts her up as a hero, which would have been completely radical. Yeah. In those days, because widows were somebody that were seen as uh, in the the best light of the people of God, someone to be taken care of, right? And he's saying, here's somebody that you can learn from. And so there's a humility involved in in serving in ways that lead to justice that I think um, humility and those relationships are the key to transforming um, charity into justice work. Yeah. I, I recently came across some commentary on that story that that indicated that not not only is it this kind of radical, you know, reversal of of um the common perception, right, of, of positions within society, but that the widow herself, by publicly making this donation, you know, of her her two coins, whatever, you know, that that is all she has, is almost in a way that the, our modern language would be sticking it to the man, right? To say, <laughs> listen, y'all are given your, you know, maybe it's maybe it's more dollars than I have to give, sure. but I'm given everything. Right. And and so it's this public demonstration of are, are you in this game or not? Right. Are are you in <laughs> to make right. changes or are you in it for yourself? I remember reading 
um, in undergrad, I was an English major and I had this one whacked out professor <laughs> that um, had us reading like Derrida and all this, you know, kind of postmodern stuff. Um, and there was, there was this one, I can't remember what the book was or who the author was, but it was basically about um, is when we experience happiness and joy, is that ultimately a selfish act? Right. And I think a lot of times, you know, in, in church world, we don't go there, right? We, we do the things, right? We do the custodial sorts of care, those things, and we congratulate ourselves for what we've done. And again, it's good and necessary work, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, saying that we shouldn't do it. But then you, you, you get, you know, people together when we could get together, you know, in the <laughs> fellowship hall on Sunday, having their potluck dinner or something, talking about how good it made me feel to go, you know, give something of myself, you know, to go do this for them. Right. And, and I've often wondered in the midst of that, like, that, are, are you doing it because it makes you feel good? Because if that's why you're doing it, that's ultimately a selfish act or a self-centered act. And if we can kind of extend that, um, that analogy to say, you know, if, if what we call sin, like, and that's a whole other conversation, like how we define <laughs> what sin is, that'd be fun. Wouldn't that'd be a fun podcast. To do. <laughs> um, but if we can s somehow say that, you know, whatever sin is, it starts with self-centeredness, right? The, the, the looking, you know, kind of the bend inward towards what's good for me as opposed to what's good for the common good. Right. And so we do these things because they make me feel good which is ultimately, we could, we could say, you know, in one sense, that's ultimately a sinful act. So what do you think of that? <laughs> sure. So I think, right, the possibility in the Christian story is that um, sin can be redeemed and uh, that we are transformed in that process of redemption. So one of the ways, it, it, it's easy to be critical of that arm's distance charity or custodial work that you're talking about. Um, it's easy to be critical about that. And I spent uh, a long time in pastoral ministry privately critical of that, which is not a recipe for happiness <laughs> in your vocation <laughs> because I believed in the work, yeah. but I thought that there needed to be more. And so there was a long time where I was um, thinking about what the church or pastors ought to be critiquing right? And there came a point where I said, wait a second, where and when do we start talking about what we are for mm, yeah. rather than what we're against? So one of the ways then that that can frame that, that charity work is that we look at it in terms of a yes and rather than an either or. So when you have someone who is excited about the work that they're doing to help someone. And let's take a really common example of that, which is an angel tree oh, okay. situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So okay, explain because for our listeners what that is, right? Sure. sure. So um, this is where you gather needs, perhaps in partnership with a local direct service organization that's working with people who are impoverished in your community. And they interview these families and they get clothing sizes and toy requests and all that kind of stuff. And so you, you hang all these um, three by five cards on a tree in your church building. And, uh, and so, you know, boy, seven years old, X toy. Like I'm not hip enough anymore to even insert an example <laughs> in there. Um, you know, or, um, you know, girl age 13 size, whatever needs a jacket, right? So all of these different gifts are hung on three by five cards. You don't know the name of the person that you're buying a gift for, but people go out and gladly do this Christmas shopping for these families often, uh, most often it's families and not individuals who, who cannot provide Christmas gifts for their own children in their household. So you get to go out, you get to purchase the gift, you sign up that you're taking, you know, this tag uh, to help boy age seven and you bring back your gifts and they get wrapped and then they get given to those families. And, and, and the church members, I would say probably the majority of people who do this, if not all the church members never see those folks. Right, right. You know, we want to preserve dignity for exactly. those folks, but it's definitely something that's done. We don't know them. We don't want to make them feel badly, but we still use the language of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? 
Okay. So, so that's a, that's a really common um, situation for that to happen. What if we then said, yes, it's so good that you're helping people and now let's go be with them. Right. Right. What are ways in our faith community that we can um, begin to develop relationships with the people in material need or uh, in emotional need, uh, especially in groups that have been traditionally excluded from the church or hurt by the church? Um, You know, what if we were just to go be among those populations? Now, the tricky part is um, is is that first step to do that because you cannot, as a congregation, go plop yourself down in the middle of whatever gathering it might be, right? Of uh, you plop yourself down in the midst of a soup kitchen and sit down and expect the patrons who are there to be really interested in talking to you and telling you their life story, right? You can't go <laughs> as like this weird like um, uh, charitable voyeurism, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like it's it's hard work and the first step is really the weirdest right like how do you how do you start that but there are there are ways to do that that take that that sinful um uh, that impetus which can become sinful yeah. right which is yeah, and that's probably the most fire. fair way to describe that yeah. yeah sure that impetus that can become sinful that's that's a warped desire of what god plants in us um how do you take that and offer the opportunity for transformation, which is ultimately redeeming, which ultimately benefits both you um, and the person that you're serving and hoping to learn from. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, well, what just struck me was that the word sin has come up with you and I in this episode of the podcast already more than it has in the previous 23 episodes combined. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I've even used that word before, but but I think it is like I th- it is something that we have to wrestle with. And again, like I, again, we could do a whole podcast on how do you even define that? Because I think we have some really warped ideas um, about about what that is as far as like Christianity as a behavior management program, For sure. which is why a lot of accidental tomatoes listeners even exist. Right. Because they've been burned right. by that kind of paradigm. Um, but I love the idea of of taking that the good impulse of again it's it's that that wesleyan model of taking the good impulse of the private individual acts of piety and acts of mercy and turning those to something corporate and public not for the benefit of the giver but for the ben- and not not even directly for the benefit of the receiver but for the benefit of the whole right that we there's sure. there's a holistic nature to that kind of act where we come together with people. Right. And, and I think one of the things, and I'm just kind of spitballing here, but I think one of the things that stops us from that so often is, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a fear embedded in that, that if, if I find myself in community with these people, I'm going to lose something else, you know, that I value somewhere else. Right. Um, that I'm going to lose either something like status or privilege or, you know, whatever that may be, or, you know, maybe something that's even a little bit more benign. Like if I go and start to engage with this group of people, I may lose friends, right? I may lose my other social group that I value so much. Um, And so what kinds of conversations can we start to have with people, do you think, around breaking down those fear barriers that that are embedded in that? Yeah, the status one um, I think is easiest and is something that I try to do in my preaching quite frequently because it's such a part of Jesus's story of ministry. He's constantly getting slammed because he's hanging out with um, sex workers and uh, tax collectors who were um, exploiting people and, um, you know, the, the holy people, the Pharisees are so often coming up to him and saying, what? what are you doing? Why are you eating with these unclean people? Right? So, I mean, Jesus exemplifies and models for us uh, what it means to just not give a rip about status, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's doing the work of God. He's the kingdom in the midst of people that are ignored um, largely by society. So, I think the, the status one is real for people. Yeah. Um, 
and and I'll, I'll I'll just share a personal story. I've preached that for a really long time about how people might look at us weirdly, um, and and how we might lose relationships over that. And recently that happened to me. So, you know, I've been preaching it for a long time and probably ha- it's probably happened to me in ways that I don't know, but it happened in a really explicit way. Um, recently on, on Facebook, there was a, a young man who was posting, I, I think he's probably in his 20s and um, maybe even in his early 30s. And uh, he had a conversation going about a Black Lives Matter protest that was uh, happening and had some, uh, he and the people that he worked he was talking with had um, pretty disparaging things to say um, about the Black Lives Matter movement and some really huge general assumptions and stereotypes. And um, so generally what I do is pretty gently enter into, excuse me, enter into a conversation uh, with somebody who's expressing those kinds of things. And I did that. We had kind of a a back and forth conversation for a while. Um, And and he kind of accused me of um, defending people simply because they expressed needs or, or something like that. That was the the language and, and, you know, not vetting those needs or something like that. And I, I just, I thought about it and I really carefully responded. Um, this was a kid who in my first church, my first charge that I served in West Virginia um, was part of a community children and youth ministry that we started for kids who came from really, really difficult home situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one, um, in, in one situation, those kids had been accused of damaging um, a, a church building um, and they did not. And so I took up for them and he was one of the kids that I took up for. And so really gently, I just said, look, I've been doing this for a long time and I, and I did it for you. You didn't even know that, you know, but I took up for you way back when And I didn't explain the situation or anything. And, um, and I didn't want to embarrass him. Um, so I, I wasn't, explicit in that in any way you know his life has kind of a different shape now but um it i mean he unfriended me and blocked me uh and and that was that was a first for me i haven't because i'm usually so gentle on facebook (laughs) or like trying to ask questions like have you thought about blah 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 you know whatever (laughs) and um and it was still a gentle inquiry and conversation but he just couldn't handle it. And so, you know, I lost this person that I'd been in relationship and loved deeply uh, since the time that he was, you know, an older elementary school. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's real, it can happen. And it happens, you know, particularly these days, we have people whose close family relationships um, are very, very tense, um, because of politics or or whatever. And, um, and so the, the, the scope and magnitude of loss is, is very, easily for a lot of people far more significant than yeah. the story that I just told. Yeah. That's, um, I'm not really even sure that it, that merits a response. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a microcosm though of, of what we're seeing happening in the world. And I wonder, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud, like, you know, the places that, the church can be complicit in in creating the kinds of um, cultural atmospheres where that happens, you know, so like where relationships can fall apart over things like, well, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, stand up for people and help people because that's how I see the gospel. Right. But, but even our churches are really complicit in the, in creating this culture that, that says, well, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is, are you going to heaven when you die or not? That's really your only concern. And all these social justice issues are just kind of hippy dippy, you know, liberal claptrap or whatever that don't have anything to do with religion. And, you know, we've just kind of gotten so far, I think, from, from the real Jesus narrative, right? I was thinking about this the other day. I'm, I'm trying to write a piece about how, fundamentalism, not really fundamentalism, but like biblical literalism really isn't (laughs) that it, that it can't possibly be because you know, what I, what I see so often in, in that kind of world is they want to take, and this is a a gross overgeneralization. And this is what I have to get past to be able to write effectively about it. Right. Is 
They want to take the Old Testament very literally, you know, historically literally and all of this stuff, wrath of God stuff very literally. But they don't take Jesus literally at all. They completely take Jesus figuratively. They over, they spiritualize this Jesus movement, you know, in the way that they often accuse, you know, progressives of doing with with the Hebrew scriptures, right? And I'm not really sure where I was going with that other than to kind of say, like, we are, again, just to kind of reiterate, we're really complicit in in creating a culture within the church that has lost sight of justice as kind of really what should be our our linchpin, right? That, that should be the foundation on which we're built, so. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because just as you started into that uh, uh, um, I was thinking of this, and I think it applies to um, things that you're saying and things that I've been saying, which is um, how we understand the kingdom of God as Jesus talks about it in scripture, yeah. right? So when you understand the kingdom of God as something that begins temporally after you die um, and and a place that you are trying to get to, um, first of all, that um, um, that is based on individual salvation so it doesn't have a corporate sense to it um and and it also does the spiritualizing thing that you're talking about right so if we read kingdom of heaven which is sometimes how it's translated in the gospels if we read kingdom of heaven as just this place that we're trying to get to um once we die we've completely misinterpreted how jesus talks about the kingdom of god yes Um, so kingdom of god and kingdom of heaven are kind of used interchangeably in the gospels and um, depending on which gospel you're reading. And um, what what Jesus is talking about is a, a, a kingdom that exists now and here as well as into eternity, um, that, that, that it's not just this thing that happens later or a place that we go to, but it's what's happening here. And it exists, it's just whether or not we want to step into it or not. Yeah. So when, when the kingdom of heaven is um, understood in the way that Jesus talked about it, um, then we're very definitely concerned with earthly and temporal um, oppression and um, material needs, right? right? Lack of lack of having what you what you need. So it is a scriptural move, right? Yeah. Um, whether you're going to spiritualize, whether you're going to look at this in um, the broader sense, and and the interpretation of that, I think, gets to what you're talking about—that kind of pie in the sky, uh, me and Jesus, mm-hmm. just going to. Get Which again to, is is ultimately a selfish act, right? Sure. It's, it's ultimately an internally focused. As long as my tickets punched, my fire insurance is paid up. Blah blah blah. Right? Then I might want you to come along with me on that journey because I love you because you're my family or my friend or yeah. you know. And but but ultimately, it's to me it's ultimately kind of nihilistic about life on planet Earth. Because mm-hmm. if that's the goal of, of all existence is what happens after you biologically cease to exist, then what's what's the point in, you know, in, in anything material, right? Which is, it, you know, to, to borrow one of the ancient heresies of the church, it's a Gnostic kind of viewpoint, right? Mm-hmm. I have this special knowledge. I can separate spirituality from materiality when, when Jesus is the exact opposite of that, right? Jesus is the celebration of materiality, which is not the same as materialism. Let's just be really clear there, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Jesus, you know, God exists in the material world, (laughs) right? So that we can understand what God is, right? So Mm -hmm. I I, Mm -hmm. I wonder too, as as you were talking about, you know, we, we use that language about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I've been thinking a lot lately, and, and you've and I've been talking about like my third wave of deconstruction. Right? You've, you've really been <laughs> you helping me. Wait. You've got to be tired, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but but a lot of that, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Like for me, a lot of that has been around language, right? About around the language we use. That is, our language is so limited, right? Language is by its nature limited, but it's also all we have <laughs> to communicate with and to describe things. Um, but I. Part of part of what I've been thinking a lot about lately is, is it time for us, and as we start to think about new paradigms for what church can be, what ecclesiology can be, right, is it time for us to start to find some better language than some of this, like, kingdom 
lordship, right? Some of that stuff that we use that had really specific connotations, you know, at the time of the the biblical writers, right? That has that has evolved and changed. Like our language has changed about what we think of those things, right? Um, and to, to largely, like we think of those terms in, I don't know, maybe medieval and post-medieval terms. Like what did we mean by lords and kings and things like that? And I think I think the the mental images that we now bring to that biblical language is really pretty far detached from the original intent of that language. So, you know, when, when the disciples use the term Lord, you know, in their, the way they refer to the way the biblical writers first used that term, they're not, they're not talking about, you know, a, a superior, right? Um, in the same sense that we talk about a superior, they're talking about a benefactor, right? That, that would have been how that language would have been used in their time. You, you called someone Lord if, if they were a benefactor to you in some way, if they, if they helped you, if they employed you or gave you land or were a teacher of some kind, right? That's, that's the way they use that language. And then again, we've, we've spiritualized that kind of language, right? We talk about the kingdom of heaven and we think of earthly kingdoms, right? And which, which has driven, you know, colonialist mission for us for as long as we can remember, you know, through, um, the whole Christendom project that Jonathan Deerdorf and I talked about a few episodes ago, right? So, <clears throat> what can you can you think? Like, does that make sense? Even like I'm, I'm kind of riffing on that topic, but as we talk about, like, what do we when we reinvent what church looks, what what communities of faith look like? See, I'm even trying to get away from church language because I think a better way to describe who we are in this day and age is is communities of faith, um, and even that has some limitations to it, but. But I think a lot of this, for a lot of people, the language we use is a is one of the most unhelpful things we can do to connect people. Sure, absolutely, and I and we're always on the same page, Joe, because I've got this this note from an earlier part of our conversation <laughs> about language. Right? Take, the fact that um, you're taking notes in our conversation is my favorite thing. <laughs> welcome to Jenny Williams. Know, right? A little snapshot there. Um, so, so let me go back to one and, and then I'll get back to the specific ones you're naming now. What, one of the things I was thinking of when we were talking about charity and justice is, is the word giver, right? We were talking about does something, you know, make the giver feel happy. And we've even got to change that language. It can't be giver. It's got to be server, right? Mm, yeah. We've got to, that, that language reinforces that distance between us and people who are largely not like us and have a need, right? right? right. So but Jesus is always talking about someone who came to serve. So that language, that server language still resonates with people. So that's, I mean, we're good there, but we've got to change that sort of I give to you instead of like a humble, I want to serve you, mm, yeah. um, which is, is pretty significant. But to go back to the specific ones that you're mentioning now, like kingdom and lordship and those kinds of things. So, so here's my take and, and I'm, this is, this is not the most hip thing these days, but I, I still cling to it. <laughs> so I still think it's right. So let's take the word kingdom. So for a long time, at least the United Methodist Church has been trying to say, trying to call uh, Christ the King Sunday, which is a really important um, high day in our liturgical year that happens right before Advent, mm -hmm. sort of like the conclusion of the year to say Jesus is King over all things. The United Methodist Church and those who use um, the, the calendar of readings that we use called the Revised Common Lectionary uh, has been trying to change that to the reign of God. Mm, yeah, okay, so yeah. to go from kingdom to reign of God, uh, ostensibly to have a language that does not exclude um, people who identify as women. Right. Right. So, uh, and I get that. And, uh, and, and reign, I think, is a, is a helpful word to get at the nature of kingdom. Um, and I'll, I'll pin that for a right. second and just say some people want to change that word to kingdom to talk about, to really point to our siblings in Christ and this kind of communal, familial relationship that we have in communities of faith and as part of Christ's body, the church across the world. Um, but I think that eliminates a really significant component of the word kingdom, or if you want to use the reign of Christ, because when when Jesus and John the Baptist are using kingdom language, that is a direct threat to empire. Yes. 
right? That is a political kind of language. So even though we don't really think in terms of kingdoms mm. in America, now people in other parts of the world may, but even though we don't think of kingdoms, we understand kingdom uh, or we can use empire of God rather than kingdom of God to see that direct threat that the state experienced or that the high religious leaders in the church experience because they benefited um, mm. from how the state treated them from being in cahoots, right, in some ways. Um, so I really hesitate to take away that word kingdom. What I think uh, we're, we're charged with doing as clergy is unpacking that yeah, yeah. Um, and, and saying, here's why we have this word. Um, I just can't train myself to use reign of God. <laughs> I just, <laughs> well, I guess I'm too old. And, and honestly, to me, that's, that's a really minor tweak in semantics, sure. you know, I, because I think even for the way we use language now, the word rain, R-E-I-G-N, right? Not R-A-I-N. Right, right. <laughs> um, it, it still kind of signifies the same thing, right? That there is, and I think maybe my issue with it has less to do, I, I love what you're saying about like the political implications of it. And, and I would love for us to recapture that more. But there's still sort of a hierarchical power structure embedded in reign and kingdom that I'm personally I'm beginning to find really unhelpful in in trying to to help people have an, an experiential knowledge of the divine, right? Rather than sort of a I don't know academic, I guess for lack of a better term, because because often that's what we settle for, right? Is um, I, when I say that I believe in God or I believe in Jesus or I submit to God or, or however we use that language, a lot of times what we really mean by that is I, I am offering intellectual acquiescence to a concept. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I, I'm saying I buy into this idea, but that's still removed from an actual experience, you know, mm -hmm. of, of dwelling in something that is created by something beyond me that I get to participate in. Right. And <clears throat> excuse me. So, so I, that's where I kind of get hung up on some of that hierarchical hierarchical. I can never remember exactly what the right <laughs> form of the English major here. Can't remember the word. <laughs> right. But, but when we start to think in terms of, cause I think that that ends up kind of polluting our ecclesiology too. Right. And, and how we see the forms of, of what we would call church, right. There's, there's the laity, there's the clergy, right. And then like within our system in the United Methodist church, you know, we have, superintendents and bishops and you know we there there is there is a hierarchy baked into that even though like intellectually we would say and and most of us i think believe that that is probably you know it's really more of a linear as far as how we privilege one another right we we try to make it more linear than than vertical but but the language is is vertical <laughs> the language is very vertical right so I don't think that we can dismiss the language that we have in scripture um, for the Lordship of Christ. For example, one of the things that that might be troublesome in the ecclesiology that you're talking about is um, passages where it talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? There's Ooh, that's this a great very example. Yeah. clear, like... Uh, the Trinity is in charge, right? <laughs> um, you know, very, very clear. But then when you make the step to Christ is the head of the church and the head of the body, and you look at 1 Corinthians 12, mm -hmm. which talks about all the members of the body having a function and a place, and even talks about, you know, uh, amplifying those who are weaker in the body, lifting those up and giving, you know, the, the lesser parts greater respect, or that's how some translations take that. Um, um, I want Christ at the head of that body. And because sure, yeah. if it's left up to us, we're screwed. <laughs> you know, we're going to get that completely wrong. So, um, but we are all part of each other. So I think it's possible to hold that kind of what you could critically say is superiority language about Jesus 
which I think is necessary, um, to hold that in one hand and to hold in the other hand this incredibly egalitarian picture of the church. Yeah. Yes. So we experience the love of God in community. I mean, there's no doubting that, right? That we could go off onto a whole baptism and communion and sacraments <laughs> and grace and all that kind of stuff right there. We won't go there today, but but um, I don't have any trouble reconciling Christ as the head of the church um, with who the church is because we're all attached. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Christ is the head of the body. Um, Christ is not the um, owner of the body. We are the body of Christ. So that, I yeah, guess that's yeah. how, how I get there is to not um, dismiss that language, but reclaim it and reframe it. That's, I love that you said that because that's one of the things that we've actually been talking about a lot, both here on the podcast and in you know my own faith community, the, our new wineskins community, um, is, is that idea of reclaiming language that has become either co-opted or unhelpful. And I, I like what you said about part of the, the pastoral role or the leadership role is to unpack and to, to define, right? To define that language so that, you know, so that we know, so that we can agree. And that's the thing about language. As long as we agree with what we mean by it, Absolutely. that's okay. Like, like, that's the big thing. I think a lot of our problem in the church right now is that we don't agree Broadly, we make assumptions about what people think about certain words and terms and phrases, right? And we assume that, you know, when I say the kingdom of God, that everybody understands what I mean by that. And and I think one of the things that we're – and one of the reasons that, you know, in in a postmodern world, like even though that term has kind of fallen out of favor, I think it still describes where we are <clears> – <throat> language is power, right? And and if we can't agree on what the language means, that's where trust and faith in institutions starts to fall apart, right? <laughs> Especially among younger generations, although it's not strictly specifically generational. Um, but but as people start to say, you know, I I I don't what's the the line from the Princess Bride? Like I I don't think you keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> I think the church is guilty of that a lot, right? Yeah. We use yeah. this language that we've inherited that is meaningful to us, right? And we use it liturgically, which means you know we use it as part of our routines, um, and we assume that everybody is hearing that language the same way. Um, and to get back to an earlier point that you were making, like. There are people in marginalized communities that are not hearing that language the way we intend it at all, that are hearing it, in fact, in a way that's very harmful and very damaging. And I think we have we just have to pay attention to that. Right. Absolutely. And I was also thinking about going back to the beginning and picking up that word justice <clears throat> because that doesn't people don't use that the same way. Right. So yes. where I say justice as a good thing. Um, there's also people who are going to very quickly knee jerk at that word and, you know, sort of use social justice warriors as a, uh, a put down or a disparaging comment. So even in the church, this concept, which I think is, you know, highly biblical and beautiful, um, unless we spend some time unpacking that and talking about that together, somebody brings um, their own understanding of that word to that and immediately doesn't want to be on board with it. So I really do think, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm still in a job where I'm uh, preaching on the regular. Yeah. right? Uh, and I really do think that preaching and teaching is a lot about unpacking that language. Um, and I, I think it's important for people in those positions who are preaching and teaching to use language um, that is accessible to people, but you you still have to just not be dismissing the concepts. Um, I think it's about um, giving a depth to that concept. Now, certainly, and probably in New Wineskins, you're you know you experience this. There are just some of those words that are going to be trauma triggers that we just have to set aside yeah, in yeah. particular communities, you know. Um, but I also think that there, I mean, narrative plays into that, right? The way that we tell stories can um, help people to understand language. And then we claim that language as a common vocabulary for the faith. Yeah, yeah. I, I like justice as a really specific example is a good one, because I think for a lot, there, there's a lot of different connotations of that word, right? And I think for a lot of people, especially folks who come from a more 
um, maybe fundamentalist evangelical kind of background, when they hear the word justice, they immediately associate it with punishment, right? Not punitive. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and, and one of the ways that I've tried to combat that, you know, and just in some of my own work is, is to remind people that in, in God's economy and in, and in the biblical narrative, justice is never unwrapped from mercy, right? Justice and mercy are always, always, always tightly intertwined, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not a punitive thing. It's, it's a redemptive thing, right? And, and I think we have to, you know, just in big, like, you know, when, when we were at Wild Goose, we got to hear um, Reverend William Barber speak and, and he, he does that so beautifully in, in talking about redemptive justice as opposed to retributive justice. Shane Claiborne, who was an earlier guest on the podcast, name drop. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, he, that's, that's, that's a huge part of like the Red Letter Christians movement that, that he's a part of is, is restorative justice, redemptive justice, as opposed to punitive, retributive justice. And I, and I love what you said about like, We've got to reclaim that language. We've got to, um, to to help people get better definitions for those words. Because I think that's honestly, we, you know, when we talk about folks who are in deconstruction or have been through deconstruction, who have lost faith in the institutional church, a lot of it is around um, these language triggers, as you said, right? That mm-hmm. there are, we misuse words. We don't understand how other people hear words. Uh, and, and we're kind of arrogant about it sometimes. Um, at worst, we're arrogant about it. Um, most of the time, we're just kind of ignorant about it, you know. And mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I to to go back to your um, to mercy comment. I mean, Micah, right? And Micah yeah, six yeah. to do justice, and some of it is translated to do justice and love kindness and walk hum- humbly with your God. But uh, sometimes that kindness is translated as mercy, yeah. right? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly. So they're not um, extricable um, from each other. And the other thing that I'll say specifically about that word is, is one of the things that we have to really examine in faith communities is where, from where do we bring our understandings and impressions of a word? So justice is really easy to draw our notion of justice for a person, a human, an individual in the Mm -hmm. U.S., um, it's easy to associate that word justice with our court system, yeah, which we know are incredibly unjust in the way that we, you know, we would right. use justice. But it's the wide, it's the most available example of how the word justice is used. Or like, I sure hope justice is done in this situation, which means locking somebody away yeah. for their lifetime, yeah. right? Yeah. So we have to be. I, I just think that points to to understanding who the we is when we say things in the church, um, you know, we is the body of Christ and we draw our understandings from the body of Christ. When we say we and justice, well, you're talking about um, the state, right? So you have to kind of, when you're defining in words, you have to say, who is the we really that, that we're, we're talking about there. So, uh, you know, I think we can't discount the influence of the wider society around us on how we understand words that are also used in the church and scripture. Yeah. And not to, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but uh, I was just thinking as you were saying that too, um, you know, when we, when we equate justice to revenge, right, if that's, if that's how we're used to, you know, justice should be done, what we really mean is get revenge. I wonder if, and I just kind of thought of this, um, it, it, I'm sure it's not an original thought, but it just occurred to me, <laughs> like, if one of the problems that a lot of folks have with the term, like, social justice movements is that they're hearing that as groups who have been oppressed and marginalized getting revenge on me. Mm. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, that just uh, that we could go deep into a rabbit hole on that, and I'm not sure we have the time (laughs) to do that. Um, But it kind of goes back to something that Tamika Robinson and I were talking about a couple episodes ago. Is so often I think you know when we talk about being afraid of loss of status and privilege, you know, as we try to engage these things, um, there there is an underlying fear that 
the people who have been marginalized and oppressed are now going to rise up in power against me and mm -hmm. my group, right? And so when mm -hmm. we talk about words like justice, that's how that's understood is, oh, that means you're you're advocating for people taking revenge on my group, right? You know, so I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah. I won't go long, but I'll just say it's not a zero sum game. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's such good stuff and, and a really good place to end the first part of my conversation with Jenny about ecclesiological innovation. I hope you will come back for part two when it releases on October 2nd, 2020 as episode number 25, which, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, will be our last episode of our first season of Accidental Tomatoes. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at AccidentalTomatoes.com. And across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. So please be sure to find us and give us a like and a follow on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages where you can keep up with all of the cool things that are going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com, where I blog every week about matters of faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of the institutional church. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Joe Webb Writes. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics, I would love to hear from you. You can, again, contact us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can shoot us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please be sure to drop us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. That will help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in this ongoing conversation that we're having together. And if you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through the Patreon platform where your support helps us offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.